This is History West Midlands. In 1957, when British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan declared, you've never had it so good, he could have been talking specifically about the black country at the heart of the English Midlands. The post-war years witnessed a dramatic transformation of the 19th century industrial landscape, from a period of decline and dereliction to one where working-class prosperity came with new homes, schools, roads and hospitals. For two golden decades, unemployment was almost unknown. Wages here were about 15% above the national average, and for many families, life was really good. For the first time in working-class homes, there was money to buy modern appliances that reshaped their daily domestic lives and leisure time to enjoy themselves. But prosperity also brought social issues. In some areas, it came with shocking racial discrimination, targeting the people from the Caribbean and the Indian subcontinent who joined the local workforce at this time. These tensions were then exploited for political advantage, leaving a stain on the region's reputation for decades to come. Historian Simon Briarcliffe discusses these 20 years of black country prosperity and its social consequences with our publisher, Mike Gibbs. Simon, could you just summarise for us what happened in the black country in terms of its economy during the 20 years that followed the end of the Second World War? Well, the black country ended the war in a really strong position because as a metal-working region, it had made a lot of things that the war effort needed, but it provided coal and raw materials and all sorts as well. So it was in a really strong position It could have produced a lot more had it had sufficient numbers of people there to do the work. Obviously, there were still people away at the war about to be demobilised. There were people who had been lost, but there was also just lots and lots of work to be done. So over the next few years, the challenge was really to meet the labour shortage, to get the productive capacity of the black country up to its potential, and to build things really for export. That was the government's first priority. The black country was in prime position to do that because it made things that people wanted. So that was washing machines, cookers, and all that kind of thing. But also it made the bits to go inside almost everything that you could want. So one of the government's biggest drivers of the post-war economy was the car industry. So that was something that had been explicitly chosen by Stafford Cripps, who was the president of the Board of Trade, as one of the things that was going to recover the British economy. So rather than being limited to the middle classes and the wealthy, he wanted everybody to be able to afford a car and for Britain to be building the sort of cars that everybody would be able to afford. And the absolute centre of Britain's car industry was the West Midlands. So Birmingham, Coventry had these huge factories already. They'd been doing a lot of war work as well. But everything that you could possibly put into a car from the chassis right through to the gearbox, right through to the aerial, everything would be built in the black country using black country metalworking skills and expertise and factories. So it was in a prime position to help the economy recover and did really well out of it because employers had to compete for workers. It meant that wages went up, conditions at work were improved and all of a sudden 
the black country was prosperous. It was reasonably wealthy for a working class region. They were able to buy these cars and buy the washing machines and record players and things like that. Its prosperity was really unprecedented in its history. For many of us now, I guess the concept of full employment is foreign to our experience. Could you describe for me what it was like for individuals and individual families living in the black country in the early to mid-1950s and then into the 60s in terms of their day-to-day life? Well, full employment really means that everybody who wants a job can have a job. In the unemployment statistics, there was always a bit of churn of people moving out of one job and perhaps going into another. But really, it was less than that half a percent throughout the 1950s, 60s and into the 70s, which is not something we're familiar with at all now. At one point, I think the Labour exchange in Tipton said they had one person unemployed in Tipton. It's just unbelievable, really, which meant that if you wanted a better job, you could just leave your job in the morning, turn up at another factory and say, have you got a job? And invariably, they would say, yes. What are you going to pay me? That would be the next question. If uh, employers were competing for your labour, it meant that you have a bit of ground to negotiate better wages, better conditions. So this is a period when every factory was building a nice modern canteen for their staff, for subsidised dinners. They were building social clubs and sports grounds and throwing Christmas parties and things like that, partly to improve the lives of the workers and to keep them on board, but also to create a kind of a social bond with their workforce so that these people would want to continue working for them and develop their careers through that. And how did wages in the black country compare with elsewhere in Britain? Generally speaking, wages in the black country were a lot better than other places in Britain. And this was a time when wages were rising across the country. One estimate put them around 13% higher in the West Midlands than they were in the rest of the country. So that obviously includes Birmingham and Coventry and the really well-paid assembly line kind of work you'd do there. But absolutely the same thing would be true in the black country. And towns in their local handbooks and things would often boast about the well-paid workers and all the things that they could had there to spend their money on. So it was definitely borne out by everyday experience. And that must have made the West Midlands and particularly the black country very attractive to people who are living elsewhere in Britain or elsewhere in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I don't get the sense that lots and lots of people move from other parts of Britain necessarily because there was work to be done wherever you went across Britain. Um, It was a time of general prosperity for all. But that did mean that there was a large number of jobs that weren't being filled across the black country. Those are typically the unskilled jobs that not many people wanted to do, night shifts, things like that, in foundries, dirty, hard labour, And yes, that means that there were people that were needed to fill those jobs. And yes, that means that it became a very attractive place to work because you could be able to come, earn a decent wage, support your lifestyle, and also perhaps send some money home to family in another part of the world. And initially, where did those people come from? The first recruitment drive was in the late 1940s through to the 1950s. And that was a scheme known as European Voluntary Workers. And the government actively recruited in countries like Ukraine, uh, the Baltic states, for people to come and work here. And plenty of people did. They were often housed in camps, former army camps or former residential areas in the black country or just around the black country in places like Purton and Bobbington at the old airfields. There were camps built there for workers on this European voluntary worker scheme. And they were bussed to work at places like Goodyear's, Bilston Steelworks, at Courtold's, the rayon cloth manufacturers, there was a 
huge Lithuanian community. And they developed into a long-lasting community that stayed in Wolverhampton. There was a Lithuanian social club and church and all sorts of things like that. So these, these communities put down these very specific roots in particular areas of the black country. And this was an era of massive construction everywhere you looked in the black country. And it was often said that the black country was built by the Irish at this time. Uh, motorways, uh, major buildings, new housing. How true is that? That's absolutely true. Yeah, it was a time when Ireland itself, the economy was stagnating. It had taken a very different approach to the war by remaining technically neutral. And it was really struggling now. So people from the rural areas of Ireland particularly could do much, much better by moving to this country. So huge proportion of the workforce of the NHS when it was started was actually Irish nurses. But certainly in construction, that was the biggest employment. They worked in factories and all sorts of other things as well. But construction was the most famous one. So there were big employers based in the region. Tarmac is probably the most famous from Wolverhampton. But Waits and Wimpies had local Midland organisations. There was quite large Irish communities that built up, just as there had been a century before, actually, in similar parts of the black country, such as Wolverhampton. And employers would turn up at a local meeting point, very often a pub, with a flatbed truck and say, we need... So many uh, workers today, and they would all hop onto the back with their um, picks and shovels and go off to dig a culvert or build a block of flats or whatever it might be. Most famous was probably Luke Kelly, who went on to become one of Ireland's most famous musicians. He was in the group called the Dubliners. His most famous recollection of Wolverhampton is being fired from the building site because he claimed that the Irish were being paid less than the English workers, which was a possibility. The Irish had to come and live in shared accommodation, probably overcrowded, and do this really, really hard work. But I think a lot of them took a great deal of pride in it, actually, and were able to send a huge, huge amount of money back to Ireland at a time when their families really needed it. But Irish immigration, European immigration into the region, wasn't enough to address this problem of full employment. That's absolutely right. So even though the largest groups of people moving to the UK were from Ireland and from Poland right throughout this period. It still needed people from all other parts of the world as well. In particular, in the black country, it had a large number of people that moved from the Caribbean. Quite early on, there's records of people moving here from Jamaica in the early 50s. And sadly, as it often is the case, we get the most information about this is when they're being discriminated against. So there'd be records in local newspapers of them being banned from dances or from public baths or whatever. And then the other very large group that moved to the black country was from South Asia, all parts of South Asia, Pakistan and various parts of India, but most prominently from the Punjab, which is a predominantly Sikh region in northwest India. And there were huge, huge numbers of people, relatively speaking, that moved to the black country from the Punjab. And that took a very specific form. So whereas... The Irish or the people from the Caribbean would move to the area in the hope of finding work. And almost invariably, they were able to find work. And they might have had family here. But typically speaking, the Indian population moved because they had been told by their family members that there was work available for them. So you would have in certain factories, like the Burmid is the most famous example, which is a big combine based in Smethwick of castings for the motor industry, generally speaking. Already by 1947, they had something like 20% of their workforce was Indian, many of whom will have been employed during the war when others of their workers would have gone away for fighting. 
So they were already in a very diverse kind of uh, workforce. The foreman there would have been able to speak to their employees and say, well, we need more workers. Is there anybody that you can ask to come? And they would be able to write to their families and say, well, there's work here. Come and live with us. Come and work with us. Earn that money. And in that way, uh, you have communities that build up in places like Smethwick that are based on communities in villages in the Punjab. And what was the experience of these early immigrants? A lot of people, when they came over, most of them were single men. So they would have to find somewhere to live would be the first thing. So I've had a few people tell me that they arrived in on the train in Dudley and were sort of amazed to see all these smoking chimneys and things like that, that the issue must be factories, because it was so different to life in Jamaica or India. But they would have to find somewhere to live. That could be the first challenge, because there was definitely landlords that were unwilling to let to tenants with a different skin colour. There's definitely recordings of signs, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. So sometimes all immigrants were lumped under the same sort of banner. But generally speaking, those from the Caribbean or from South Asia had a particularly tough time of it. If they found somewhere to live, it was probably overcrowded because those people that were willing to let to people from these areas were happy to, often happy to stuff as many people in as they can. So people have told me about having to share not just a bedroom but a bed and take it on shifts. So one person would go to work while the other person slept and then they'd swap and their sheets wouldn't be changed by the landlord for weeks and they have to cook their own food and learn how to use appliances in this country that were different to what they were used to and all sorts. A lot of them were willing to do it really because they could send as much money back to their families in India or in the Caribbean where the conditions were often in desperate poverty. And what about the reaction of employers? Did they go out of their way to welcome these people? Or? It was definitely a mixture. So one estimate by the early 60s was that maybe half of iron foundries across the region was employing some kind of labour from South Asia or the Caribbean. Some people absolutely didn't want to employ people from outside the UK even, let alone people with a different skin colour. Sometimes relations with colleagues was difficult, so there was definitely workplace racism. But some employers were not just that they were desperate, they were, they were perfectly happy to work with people from around the world. The Rubri Owen was a good example. Whatever conditions might have been like on the shop floor as an employer, they were very happy to employ people from the Caribbean. And in fact, they had a works cricket team and most of the cricket team was black. At a foundry called J.H. Lavenders in West Bromwich, they employed a couple of men in the mid-1950s who were from East Pakistan, which is quite unusual. That's what's now is Bangladesh. And there wasn't a huge amount of immigration from this area during that time, but these people brought their families over. And from there, we have the beginnings of what's now the Bangladeshi and Muslim community in Wensbury. But they were supported by the company. They had long-standing careers there. They were able to progress. And what about the attitude of the trade unions? Again, that was pretty mixed. A lot of trade unions were not happy about people coming in, taking jobs, which might be to the detriment of the pay or the overtime of its employees. But then at other times, the unions were quite supportive. In 1955, in West Bromwich, the Corporation Transport Department employed quite a large number of people from Asia. And they worked quite well in the back room and in the workshops. But as soon as the company tried to put one, a man called BK Patel, as a conductor on the buses, and he was an experienced conductor. He'd done it in Mumbai before, and he was perfectly qualified to do it. 
but the whole of the driver and conducting crew went on strike. And that was a wildcat strike, so it wasn't authorised by the TGWU, the driver's union. And in fact, it was widely condemned by the union, by the transport department, by local clergy and the press and all sorts. And actually, it resulted in the drivers being almost shamed back into work. However, there were unions like the Indian Workers Association that grew up in the region and were headquartered in Birmingham and became really successful at organising for Indian workers to have their own rights and to be well treated. And I guess we can't talk about the black country and this time without talking about Smethwick. Why did Smethwick become, if you like, the poster child for the problems of Commonwealth immigration into the black country? So in Smethwick at this time, you had a reasonable number of immigrants compared to the rest of the black country, more than some other towns like Gornow or Stourbridge. Maybe 4,000 immigrants, particularly from South Asia, living in a town of about 70,000 people. It's a declining population with an ageing housing stock, so these are problems that you find across the black country. What happened there was that things got whipped up on purpose. It started off really with letter-writing campaigns to the local newspaper, with accusations that what they used to call coloured people were accosting women in the street or spreading diseases or living in awful conditions and bringing uh, infections to their neighbours and things like that. And it gradually built and built and built until you had this kind of groundswell of popular, what would have been termed anxiety, I think, about the behaviours of this so-called coloured community. The local Conservative Party were swift to jump on this. Now, the black country had been predominantly a Labour area since the Second World War, not always before that. The first MP to break that tradition was Enoch Powell, and he was elected in 1950 in Wolverhampton. Probably the most guilty candidate was Peter Griffiths, who was a head teacher from West Brom originally. He became the leader of the Conservatives on the council in 1961 and immediately started whipping things up. So under his tenure, there was a proposal to do things like segregate lessons between English and non-English students, and that caused one councillor to shout out something like, this is Staffordshire, not Alabama, in the council chamber. Labour, I should probably mention, weren't entirely without guilt here. The Labour Club, they operated a colour bar, so they didn't allow people from that weren't white in. So it's probably a combination of things. What certainly wasn't held by activists from what you would probably call the far right joining in from organisations like the Birmingham Immigration Control Association, which were, if not neo-Nazi, then very close to that. They set up their headquarters in the Red Cow in Smethwick, or just off the high street, and used to hold meetings there regularly. They were definitely contested. You know, There was local clergymen and other campaigners and campaigners from the Indian community in particular that would campaign against it. But nevertheless, this kind of swell of reactionary feeling grew up over the years preceding the general election in 1964, at which point Peter Griffiths stood as the Conservative candidate and won which was against the general swing to Labour across the country, which put Labour back in power. And the campaign has gone down in history as one of the most gruesomely conducted, most outrightly racist election campaigns. There's words that I won't use that were condoned by the candidates. They were implying that if you wanted 
more immigrants, you'd vote Labour. If you wanted less immigrants, vote Conservative, basically. Even Alec Douglas Hume, who was the Prime Minister at the time, the Conservative Prime Minister, had to disassociate himself from Griffith's tactics. But obviously tapped into a groundswell of support in Smethwick and Griffiths won the election. He was immediately castigated by his new colleagues in Parliament. Harold Wilson said he should sit out his term as a parliamentary leper, which caused uproar in the House of Commons. But it meant that actually Griffiths only lasted a couple of years up until the next election. And probably the most amazing thing that happened is that in early 1965, Griffiths had sanctioned an appeal by a group of residents from Marshall Street in Smethwick for the council to buy up some of the houses on the street as they became vacant and only let them out to white families. And as a response to that, the Indian Workers Association invited none other than Malcolm X to Smethwick, which seems almost unbelievable, really. That Who was Malcolm X? Malcolm X was... I always had a um, great deal of difficulty trying to find the right words to describe him very briefly. To call him a civil rights leader in America doesn't really do justice to the kind of the opprobrium that he'd brought upon himself. But he was an early exponent of what was later be called as black power, a campaigner for rights for black people in the US, and had just severed his relationship with the Nation of Islam, which was a, a militant black power movement in the US. Extremely controversial character. His life and his autobiography and his speeches and things have actually gone on to make a huge difference to how black communities in America have perceived themselves and, and the things that they've accomplished since then. But at the time, he was regarded by a lot of people as a really dangerous kind of character. He was invited by the IWA to Marshall Street, and there's these amazing photos of him looking around this terraced street in Smethwick. He's supposed to have gone for a pint in a pub with the local association. I have no idea whether that's true, because as a strict Muslim, he probably wouldn't have drunk. But I, I, so that, that's still up for debate, I think. But he told journalists that he'd been told that in Smethwick, black people were being treated in the same ways as Jews had in the Second World War. And they really needed to do something about it. And considering this is only 20 years after the liberation of the concentration camps, this was really powerful language. And it's something that's really gone down as... Um, a major event in Smethwick history, I think. Um, what was the impact of this on ordinary people in the black country who weren't directly involved? In Dudley, just down the road in 1962, so after Peter Griffiths had been going for a year or two, there was riots. They were gone down as being known as race riots, but what that really means in the Dudley context is that large Groups of young white people descended on streets like North Street and Porter Street and where a lot of people from the Caribbean lived in Dudley and attacked their homes and attacked people. And there were more and more instances of workplace racism and colour bars in shops and pubs and all that sort of thing. So I think it empowered people to express opinions that really were against the grain of British immigration policy and probably minority opinions, but they were given this support and they were it felt okay to express it. So the Definitely still minority opinions, but they were the noisy ones very often. They were supported by very unpleasant, also very noisy people like like Colin Jordan, who was the leader of the neo-Nazi movement at the time, and Oswald Mosley, who was still going. And when did all this fade away, or didn't it? Well, it, Peter Griffiths lasted just two years in Parliament before the next general election, and he was booted out by the Labour candidate, Andrew Fords. The new Labour government in 1965 passed a Race Relations Act, which meant they were able to, for the first time, prohibit discrimination on the base of skin colour. 
1966, perhaps it seemed like things were getting better when Griffiths was booted out. I should notice it didn't stop him having a future career. He went on to be a Tory MP for many years in Portsmouth afterwards, up until 1997. But in the black country, I think waiting in the wings were other far-right groups, other people who were willing to express this kind of sentiment, and perhaps most famously Enoch Powell in Wolverhampton, hadn't had up to that date a history of controversial statements particularly. He'd been Secretary of Health in the early 60s, and under his secretaryship, he sanctioned the recruitment of something like 20,000 junior doctors from India. So he knew that immigration had its purposes and it was needed for the running of British society. He ran for the leadership of the Conservatives in 1965 and failed miserably. And most historians have argued that he approached his tactics slightly differently from that point onwards, saw what happened in Smethwick and thought, actually, there's some ground here that I can exploit and decided to go down that route. It's certainly always been a an ardent imperialist. He used to describe himself having wandered the streets in despair after India was granted its independence in 1947. But in 1968, he made his famous speech in Birmingham that was become known as the Rivers of Blood speech, describing the date in the soon future as he saw it when the black man would have the whip over the white man and things like that. And particularly, he used a lot of anecdotes from Wolverhampton about his constituents that had told him that they were the only white person left on the street or that they were intimidated. That really kind of blew the powder keg, I think, nationally. So whereas Peter Griffiths and the Smethwick effects probably remained local, he was so castigated in Parliament and the news and everything afterwards that he never really got a chance to make himself a national figure. Enoch Powell was a very prominent politician already and was instantly booted into this infamy. People went on strike in support of him. People went on marches between Wolverhampton and Dudley saying, we want Enoch for PM and things like that. And he remained one of the most popular politicians right through into the 1970s and remained MP for Wolverhampton up until 1974 when he went off to South Down to become an Ulster Unionist. But there were also plenty of people that resisted him. And this is perhaps the start of the anti-racist movement in Britain because it really got students involved and organisations like the Indian Workers Association in campaigning for the rights of immigrants in particular and people of colour of all sorts. And here in the black country, what, 40 years or more later, how does one view this period in black country history? I think there are a couple of things perhaps we can learn from it. Perhaps firstly that reactionary racism didn't always happen. So there were towns which had um, communities of people from all over, like Warsaw or West Brom, that didn't have this sort of large-scale outbreak of widely expressed racism. People in those towns would have uh, experienced racism, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't okayed by politicians or approved by the press or anything like that. Those were particular circumstances which were used for, I think, for political gain, for notoriety. And in fact, for example, in West Bromwich on the bus strike, when everybody gathers together to say, no, we're not having this, it's not okay, this is not something that should be happening, those things seem to get clamped down pretty quickly. And then the other thing is that sometimes these experiences are pretty awful at the time, but have the effect of galvanising activity in opposition like happened at Wolverhampton after Enoch Powell, people started to come together to 
oppose racism in all its forms. The Indian Workers Association and the Student Union at the Poly, as it was, used to go out on pub crawls together to test out the limits of the Race Relations Act. So you're no longer allowed to have a colour bar in pubs in Wolverhampton. They used to go and test it. And that's a really important moment, I think, of people coming together to say, nope, it's not okay. We can do something to fight this. So I think there are things we can learn. We should certainly look back on it with horror, I think. But also there are things that we can learn because those problems are by no means all solved in the present. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. You can read more about this fascinating story of the post-war black country in Simon's book, Forging Ahead, Austerity to Prosperity in the Black Country, 1945 to 1968. It can be ordered now at our website, www.historywm.com or from Amazon. You can also watch Simon's documentary film, which includes unique images from the Black Country Living Museum photographic collection. It's available now on our website and on YouTube.